2: Presented by AT and T. Connecting changes everything.
1: Hello, and welcome to Sabre Production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. I'm Annie Reese, and I'm Lauren Volkelbaum,
0: And today we have for you an interview from New Orleans.
1: Yes, because it is Mardi Gras season. It is currently. Mm-hmm. We are fast approaching. The big day.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yes. And we're also fast approaching it having been like a year and a half since we were in New Orleans. So we're like, let's go ahead and publish these last couple interviews that
1: we—excellent,
0: beautiful interviews. No reason not to publish them. Should deserve—they deserve to be published.
1: They do. I'm getting like outraged on their behalf that we've waited this long. I
0: know, right? I'm I'm getting outraged on on your behalf, dear listener.
1: Or <laughs> the outrage all around. Yeah. But I'm sure it will be mitigated because this interview is a delight.
0: It is such a delight. Um this is our interview with chef Amy Sims.
1: Yes. Um and she is the founder of Langwa, which is this company that's like she describes it as a traveling food show. So it's – I really wish we could have done it. Oh, gosh,
0: right. Yeah, because it's like cooking classes, but it's a lot more theatrical than that.
1: Yes, and there's an educational part of it. Absolutely. Because she has a wealth of knowledge about New Orleans history and the, the history and culture behind all of these dishes that we associate with New Orleans that mm-hmm. a lot of us, including me, might be eating right now. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, and Cajun and Creole history and um, and all of that good stuff. She also – did a cookbook after Katrina called The Ruby Slippers Cookbook, um, collecting recipes from these local neighborhoods that were in danger of losing them due to this natural disaster.
1: Yeah, and um, you'll hear her speak about it in the interview, but that's something I would never really considered in the aftermath of disasters like that, losing recipes. Right, right. And, And in a place like New Orleans, where there's just such a cultural cuisine and heritage there, How devastating that could be! Absolutely. So that that was a really powerful moment. Um, This this interview also features probably one of our biggest surprises, happiest surprises. No way to anticipate it. No, No, and you'll 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 know it when you get to it. You will absolutely. There will be no doubt in your mind. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you live a very particular type of life, yes. In which case, we want to talk to you.
0: Twenty thousand percent. Oh gosh. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, uh, so we got to meet up with Amy in the home base of Langlois, um on a, a bright and sunny morning. Mm-hmm. And we're going to let former Annie and Lauren
4: and Amy take it away.
0: You grew up uh, not here in New Orleans, but in the in the area, right?
4: Yes, I was born here in New Orleans, and in New Orleans that. That is a big deal. The first question people ask are, are you from here? (laughs) So I can say yes, I was born here. I grew up about 45 minutes outside of town in what would be considered Cajun country and spent every Sunday dinner at my grandmother's house here in the city. And uh, when it was time for college, once New Orleans is in your blood, you can't get out. So uh, I, I moved to New Orleans and have been here ever since. And married a man from New Orleans, and you'll find that they don't even move out of their neighborhood. So you won't get them out of the city. (laughs) (laughs) What
0: was it like growing up? What was the experience of those of those suppers like?
4: Yeah, food is our life. It is pretty much all we talk about. And the one thing that you have in common with everybody you meet, because everybody has to eat. So you can always find common ground whether you agree on anything or not. You can agree that you have to eat. And uh, so growing up in South Louisiana, everything revolved around food, every special occasion, every Sunday dinner. And it was all about bringing people to the table, friends, family, and eating.
0: What struck you about that That hospitality and that community that made you want to do what you do now.
4: So one of the things that I, you know, grew up when I grew up in a big family. I have four sisters, and my job was to cook because it is how I relax. It's kind of how I chill down, and I learned that from my dad. And uh, there was a point doing just business and working in corporate America that I kept going, God, I just need to calm down and chill. I need to cook and I need to cook for people. And there's something about when you cook for people, you get this kind of immediate response. They know, they can feel the feeling you're putting in the food and you see it in their face. And there's nothing more exciting to me than to put like all my love and energy into a dish and then watch somebody enjoy it. And there was a point about, Six years ago, I said, I need to just do this every day. And so I opened up Langlois.
0: And uh, what, do, what do y'all do?
4: So I call it culinary entertainment. Um, I don't like to use the word demonstrations because there's a lot of bad demonstrators out there that are super boring. So I um, I teach people about Cajun and Creole cuisine. I cook for them. Um, I get to tell stories all day long, all the time. And really my goal is that people embrace, understand, and are inspired by local Louisiana cuisine. You, you grew up in um,
0: the official jambalaya capital of the uh, world?
4: Yes, yes. The, that, world. the claim to fame of my hometown yeah. is that we are the jambalaya capital of the world, of the world, and not just of Louisiana, of the world, I'd have to say that. But uh, where I grew up, our jambalaya was a brown jambalaya. And um, it gets its color from like cooking all the onions and the meat and really getting it nice and dark. And I would come here to New Orleans to my grandmother's house and have jambalaya and go, what is this red rice? Because in my opinion, it cannot be a Cajun jambalaya if there is a single tomato in it. (laughs) And um, it seems so bizarre to me that people would even consider ruining such a delicious dish with a tomato, you know, as a child. Now I have a better understanding of why our food is different 45 minutes away. But um, yes, our, uh, you know, jambalaya, I still go home. And there's a little place called the Jambalaya Shop, and they sell jambalaya by the gallon bucket. And I buy it and I bring it home, and it's ridiculous because I could totally cook it myself. But theirs is so good and so perfect, why mess with it? Oh, yeah. Um, so was so is, so is your grandmother cooking uh, more Creole-style food? She uh, definitely, here in the city, we were more likely to have Creole-style food and kind of more of that, like, home cooking roast and gravy and rice and and things like that whereas uh, my dad was I lived on a farm my dad was kind of a hunter you live off the land Uh, you never tell anybody what's in the pot when they come over for dinner till after they eat it because you just it's just easier that way and um, so I we had more wild game so, you know, at my grandma's, we're gonna have like a beef roast. We're gonna have things that were, you know, more, I guess, city sophisticated, whereas at home we're having rabbit and quail and, you know, deer meat and things like that.
0: And could you could you talk a little bit about what it is to be Cajun and what it is to be Creole? Sure.
4: Um, I feel like um, we as Louisianians have probably done a little bit of a disservice and creating further confusion for people about the difference between Cajun and Creole. And they're very distinctively different. So if we look at our Cajuns, they came from French Nova Scotia, La Cadie, but they were country people. They settled outside of the city. They were hunters, farmers, trappers. So the food was going to be a one pot meal. If you were here in New Orleans, you were considered Creole originally. And it was kind of this sophisticated French food from our first French settlers. But being a port city, we're starting to kind of become this melting pot where all these flavors are coming in. So there's, you know, Native Americans who are here, French, West African, German, Spanish. Around the 1850s is when the Sicilians started to move in, in mass. And they introduced New Orleans to the canned tomato they canned tomato, single-handedly transformed every New Orleans dish. So it kind of turned into Cajun was rustic country, Creole was fancy city. And then it was like, does it have a tomato or does it not have a tomato? And that was how you determined it. But Creole really means born of the colony. And uh, if you were a person or a product, you were often called Creole. And so we start to get some confusion for people in that uh, you know you can watch a commercial about New Orleans and hear Zydeco Cajun music, and then it's called Creole seasoning blend. So uh, people who identify as Cajun, I think are very passionate about their heritage and their culture, and they do tend to, to kind of have this more of a down-home family kind of I don't want to say like I, I mean I guess I could say I'm country people you know <laughs> like we were country people you know we did live off the land and um there's something about that that heritage that we really you know hold on to pretty strongly
1: we have some more of our interview with Amy don't fear but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor <laughs>
0: And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the
1: number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com.
2: Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! it's
3: just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back into the interview.
0: Um, I'm distracted by the spaghetti ghost.
4: Could you... <laughs> So <laughs> I will be more than happy to introduce you to him. Please,
1: please.
4: Um, so the building that we're in uh, is from 1850. And uh whenever I was renovating it, I felt like there was a ghost here. Like to the point that I would come in and say, good morning. Because if you have a ghost you want it to like you. Exactly. Yeah. Be polite. Yeah. And, I mean, the last thing you want to do is upset the ghost that you have yeah. to spend every day with at work. <laughs> I mean, you're in its house. <laughs> so I did an uh, um, Ancestry.com search on the building and pulled all the census records and I had a list of all the names of the people who lived here. And I had a lady who came over for brunch and she said, guess what? I'm president of the New Orleans Paranormal Society. If you give me the keys to your building and you agree to not be there, I'll do a hunt. And my husband is always like, Amy, you're crazy. <laughs> like, have you lost your mind? You just gave your keys to strangers. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's not a stranger. Just, we had, you know, we had brunch. We had brunch. It's fine, <laughs> you know. And they're probably my cousin somewhere deep down the line. It's Louisiana. So, um, So I said, if it's not here, don't invite it. If it's not nice, don't want to know about it. And then here's the list of names. And uh, she called me at like 2.30 in the morning and said, we talked to Mr. Ferrara. I'm like, oh my God. So they had an audio recording, clear as day. You hear her say, is that you, Mr. Ferrara? He's like, what? And he's like, you know, talking, but you can't really hear like what he's saying because she's asking questions. So um, turns out he ran an illegal gambling ring out of the building. Uh And there was a law in New Orleans that you could not sell alcohol to women. And he was arrested for that. So every time I open a bottle of wine in the building, I say cheers to Mr. Ferrara. And for about six months, my mom was ill and I took six months off. So I kind of, I wasn't here. And because New Orleans is full of crazy people, uh, I got a text message from a lady who is, I, I affectionately call crazy. Um, because everyone else would just say that we're crazy. Um, But she sent me a text and she said, you need to go to your building. Your spirit is sad. He doesn't know where you've been and why you left. And I'm like, oh my God, tell the building to get in line. I have emails, I have phone calls. So I, of course, the next morning I came to talk to the building. And I said, Mr. Ferrari, you have three choices. You can go to the light. You can stay here. Or jokingly, I had a pack of New Orleans made luxury macaroni. It's just the Sicilian brand uh, spaghetti. And I said, or you can jump in this pack of spaghetti and you can just come with me everywhere I go and hang out. And so I go home with a pack of spaghetti and I tell my husband and he's like, you've lost your mind. You're nuts. (laughs) He's like, you talked to a ghost. You told it to jump in spaghetti and you brought the spaghetti to our house. And I was like, yes. So I started bringing the spaghetti with me everywhere uh, to events, cooking classes, things all over town. I had never told the lady what I did, Uh I didn't want her to know that I embraced that level. And Uh so I, uh, about a month later, she sent me a message that said, Mr. Ferrara is having so much fun traveling and meeting new people. And I'm like, oh my God, he lives in the spaghetti. So this is Mr. (laughs) Ferrara, he lives in the spaghetti. My husband bought him a um, protective plastic case. That's probably good. (laughs) So then nothing would happen. And um, so I bring him and my clients get to meet him. And just recently, I went to a conference in Portland and my chefs were like, you should bring him on a road trip. So I threw him in my suitcase. And when I got to the hotel, he had been inspected by TSA. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sure he has lots of stories about his travels, (laughs) but unfortunately, I have not been able to hear them. (laughs) Oh, well, it's so
0: good to meet you, Mr. Ferrara. (laughs) We love, we love a ghost story. Some of our favorite road trip stuff is looking up haunted items on, on eBay. Oh, and, absolutely. And just all of the stories and people are, oh, it's terrific. I didn't know
4: that was available on eBay. Like, you can buy? I
0: think a lot of it is kind of like fiction writers who just want to make $5 and also have a mirror. Um, but, you know, there's, there's it- some really strange... Our very favorite was, oh, goodness... Uh, Farrah, uh, who was, uh, haunted, uh, boudoir, b- I can never say the boudoir. word, boudoir, trey. Okay. She was a tray, and she was a teenage spirit and she was very playful and very mischievous and Farah the haunted tray. Yeah.
4: Oh, wow. Well, it makes sense because people ask me all the time if they can buy Mr. Ferrara and I just that thought that rude. was bizarre. Well, so I, I thought, I was like, well, you know, he's Sicilian, he'd be in on this. I'm like, maybe we should tell him to jump into the container oh, sure. and I'll just get a case of spaghetti and just keep selling the spaghetti and see what happens. But, you know, he'd probably be in on it. He'd probably think it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so that explains why people ask if they can buy him. Oh goodness. They're <laughs> glad that we're connecting dots here. <laughs>
0: Um, could, you, could you talk about how you came to write uh, the Ruby Slippers Cookbook?
4: Sure. Uh, I wrote a, a book called Ruby Slippers Cookbook, uh, Life After Katrina. My house was on the levee break of the 17th Street Canal. So if you watched any of the coverage, there was like a big hole and a helicopter with a little bitty sandbags trying to fill the hole. That was right behind our house. So um, we had about eight feet of water in the house. But New Orleans is a collection of neighborhoods. And people don't always live or move outside of the neighborhood they grew up in. So my husband and I lived a block from the house my mom grew up in, where my grandfather lived, all of our aunts, uncles, everybody was in the same neighborhood and all affected. One of the things I realized was that we lost all of our family recipes because you couldn't call your aunt or your uncle or your grandfather to get a copy of them. And uh, my mother-in-law and I would try to, like, dry the recipe cards out in the sun. And I decided, you know what? Next time this happens, I need a book that has everything that I love to cook all in one place and I can evacuate it with, with it. And I started just meeting people and in New Orleans, you can stand in line at a grocery store and ask people what they're cooking and you will get the recipe. And I I met people along the way and just saw the resilience and the spirit and the love of our culture and food that the book just took on a life of its own. And I released it about, uh, on the first anniversary of Katrina.
0: Was, was there anything that you learned while you were researching the book and collecting those recipes about New Orleans or about the food that you that you were just learning for the first time?
4: You know, one of the things I I realized is just how open strangers are when it comes to food. I had never really approached strangers to talk about food you know strangers became friends over food at a dinner table or something like that and just the the passion that people had for telling you the story of what they ate just really resonated and kind of strikes your heart a little bit yeah
0: yeah um that's the favorite part of our job for sure how willing people are to talk about that kind of thing what like Attitudes about food that you encounter around here are kind of uniquely New Orleans.
4: I would say that there are several polarizing foods that people will absolutely argue to the death about, um, and then there are things that we all agree upon. And uh, I am—I would say that most of the time, it's what their mama taught them. And it is not my position to question someone else's mama. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. But, you know, when you look at a dish like gumbo and the rules that different families will have about gumbo, what color is the roux? Can you put your land and your sea animals in the same pot? Does sausage or bacon really count? Because that's kind of seasoning. So maybe you can throw that in a seafood gumbo. And the debate that putting a tomato in a gumbo could spark is exponential. And I I laugh all the time when I open up my Facebook and some national brand has put on their Facebook page an instant pot gumbo or some kind of crock pot gumbo. And you go, who the heck puts a mushroom in their gumbo? Where did the lima beans come from? This is, this is soup, is not gumbo, don't call it soup. And I think the one thing that we agree upon is that we feel passionately that certain dishes are ours. Gumbo is ours. Uh, Jambalaya is ours and uh, you can make it, but if it's not made the way that we agree it should be made, Mm -hmm. just call it something else. (laughs) And I, I think uh, you, you could walk out on a street corner and start a debate, for an hour, if you if you really wanted to.
0: <laughs> we've got a little bit more of this interview left, but first we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies.
2: It's
3: just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
0: And we're back. Thank you sponsor and back to the interview. What are some of your favorite stories to tell while you're you're entertaining?
4: You know, I really like, um, you know, if we look at the history of New Orleans, um, you know, the name of my business is called Langlois. And here in New Orleans, we, we're we a collection of stories. And, you know, some of them, eh, maybe they've been embellished a little. <laughs> Others, we just embrace them. But we're a collection of stories and a collection of cultures. And whenever I was coming up with the name for the business, I started just going through history books and reading history books and waiting for something to just jump out of the book and hit me. And there was a story about Madame Langlois. She was French-Canadian, and some say she was a friend of um, Bienville's mother. Bienville was our first governor. But if we look at the history of New Orleans, pretty much the guys got out of jail free in France and they sent them here. And it kind of explains the trouble that we've gotten ourselves into. But it's really hard to populate a colony when you only send men to the colony and there are no ladies. So the governor sent a request that they get boatloads of ladies so that everyone could find a wife. But if you imagine uh, being a, a lady from France, getting on a boat, coming to a new world and showing up in a hot, swampy, mosquito-infested, humid mess, and then you get married off to the first criminal that you met there's definitely going to be a level of displeasure and um, you're going to seek comfort food and comfort food would be a traditional french baguette and wheat does not grow well here so you're not going to get that here and so the ladies formed a formal protest and marched on the governor's house as the story goes banging their pots and pans, demanding good quality bread or the next boat back to France. Somehow they got over the criminal husbands but the bread was the final straw. (laughs) So Bienville turned to Madame Langlois and she had been studying with our Native American tribes and she learned how to make cornbread. Crisis averted, she taught the ladies cornbread. They all decided to stay, but she would open up her kitchen and invite people in and teach them about the flavors and the indigenous foods of the area. And we like to say that she is the mother of our Creole cuisine. She was the first to create that classic French Native American fusion and um, probably the first to uh, calm down the, uh, the very uh, opinionated women of New Orleans and South Louisiana. We truly get it uh, naturally, I suppose. <laughs> but. Uh, I like to think that we're carrying on her tradition by teaching people about the flavors of the region and somehow carrying on that mission, a uh, story or no story. It, you know, it's amazing to see how all these foods and flavors have come together and how New Orleans just embraces it.
0: Yeah, um, it, it really is incredible to me. I mean, it's, you know, it happens a little bit in any port town, but um, but exactly how integral all of the different elements really are.
4: And, you know, when you look at the cultures and you look at New Orleans as a collection of neighborhoods, and it's really easy for us now to say, oh, my goodness, that's not authentic New Orleans. But I go, well, you know what? In 1850, when the Sicilians moved in, how many of the French and Spanish were going, Oh, goodness gracious, what is this tomato thing? And then it, but be- we embraced it, and but be- it became who we are. And we're seeing that we had French and Spanish and German and West African, but there are other cultures that have influenced our food that we're just really starting to give credit. And so you see the Vietnamese community and the importance they have in our fishing industry, but how their flavors are so prominent. The Filipinos, New Orleans is, I think, one of the few places where when you go to get a Snickers bar or your Reese's peanut butter cups at the grocery store, right next to it is a little bag of dried shrimp. And that is thanks to the Manila men who taught us that you can take the sweet lake shrimp, dry them in the sun. If you'd like to eat them as a snack, you can. But if you are making a seafood gumbo and your stock just needs a little more fortification, you throw the shrimp in. That's, you know, the Filipino community introduced us to that, but they don't get full credit for why our seafood gumbo can be so delicious. And we see the same thing now with Honduran cuisine. Uh, right after Katrina, uh, we had a Honduran community that helped us rebuild. And I kept saying, we're gonna see pupusas everywhere in fine dining restaurants in the next 20 years. And we're starting to see different chefs here in town start to incorporate those Honduran flavors. And you realize our food is constantly changing and it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it should evolve, right? I mean, as our tastes do and as our foodstuffs do. Um, would, you, would you ever live anywhere else?
4: My husband and I have that conversation all the time. You know, what if there was another storm? What if something happened? What if our business brought us somewhere else? And I keep saying, I could probably have a house somewhere else. My heart will always live in New Orleans, no matter what. And there's something about this city that just embraces you. And when you embrace it back, you can't leave. And I tell people from out of town, if this is your third visit, I have a guy, cause you're probably looking for real estate because New Orleans has called you. And there's something about the total dysfunction of this city that is charming and you just can't get away from it. <laughs> I'm working on a new cookbook and I, uh, that's my next project. I've been saying that for four years because every time I start writing a cookbook, I remember how much work the first one <laughs> was, and it's really hard. Um, I do a lot of disaster relief, and that's kind of the direction I feel my heart being pulled right now with uh, us going through Hurricane Katrina, and then two years ago, Louisiana went through some significant flooding, and... I started spearheading some efforts for food disaster relief and feeding people who were going through difficult situations like that. And I realized that the New Orleans restaurant community is incredibly generous and willing to give back. And I think other communities around the country are the same way. We've built a really cool formula at how we've been able to efficiently feed people during disasters here and used it in Florida and used it in Texas. And so my goal is that I'll be able to share that formula with people around the country because with forest fires and floods and things that are happening, there's no reason we should all be recreating the wheel, trying to scramble. So I'd love to be teaching more people how to go rogue and uh, really, You know, pull together a group and motivate a group of volunteers from the food community because we understand food safety. And as much as people want to cook for others to make them feel better, there are some rules we have to follow. And in a disaster situation with no water, no electricity, you have to really be careful. And my goal is to teach more people how they can do that on a a massive scale, so.
0: that's great.
4: And as far as New Orleans' future, I think it's bright. I think we are growing and we're at this point, especially in the food world, where we have two very distinctly different dining experiences. There are the old school restaurants Arno's, Galatoire's. If I'm going to Arno's, I am going for the turtle soup. I am going for the shrimp ramalade. I have a very specific menu that I never deviate from because it's classic. The menu there has been the same for 100 years. There's a reason why they do what they do. But then there's this exciting, you know, we have these chefs out there who are doing incredible fun Interesting, innovative things. And there's a special on the menu every week. So when I go to a restaurant like Mobar or Cabin, like when you go to any of these restaurants now, you want what's new. And so you have a dilemma as a diner here in New Orleans. You have to decide are you going to go old school? Are you going to be innovative? But you have the opportunity to do either and as long as we can protect that classic and not lose it then i say we can have as much fun as we want on the other side too so i see great things and i see a lot of opportunities and i i see us as a constantly swinging pendulum we get very protective and classic And then we all chill a little bit, and then we start getting a little wild, and then we rein ourselves back in. And I see that happening over the next couple of years. Remember, there are a few rules when you're visiting New Orleans. Um, As a resident of the French Quarter, I will say when it comes to drinking in New Orleans, if it is red, green, or purple, and served in a cup on Bourbon Street, do not drink more than one. (laughs) Uh, If I am off on a Friday night, there is nothing more exciting than watching the security cameras outside my house and watching what happens to people who drink more than one. Uh, But also, it is a marathon, not a sprint. Pace yourself and eat every three hours. If you're not eating every three hours, you cannot fit it in. And remember that three days is not enough. You really need to be here for a week. And before you come, my suggestion is that you eat as much as you can for two weeks before you get here. Then you can stretch your stomach and then you can eat more when you get here. There are people who have this idea that they're gonna eat less and diet so they can enjoy more of the calories here. Don't worry, we keep the calories at the airport when you leave, (laughs) so it's okay. But definitely be prepared to eat and experience as much as you can. And even if it's something you think you don't like, try it. I always give something three attempts. So if you say, I don't like okra, eat three different kinds of okra dishes. And whatever it is, if you really hate it, eat it fried and you'll probably love it. <laughs> so,
0: Wise advice, absolutely. <laughs>
1: And now we arrive at the end of this interview. And okay, just be honest, you did not expect a spaghetti ghost to show up in it, okay? (laughs) And if anybody did, again, write in, please. We
0: need to know more about you. Yes. And whatever lifestyle has led you to that kind of expectation.
1: Yes, because true story on our short list of ideas for uh, years. Haunted Foods has been on there. But we haven't been able to track down enough haunted foods. So yeah. if you've got your finger on the pulse... <laughs> of haunted food stories. Yes. Yes. Not like like, like literal foods that... Yes, are possessed by spirits? We want to know. Yes, because I thought I thought there was a story about a cake that was haunted. and when you ate it, like terrible things happened, but I couldn't find any proof that that was a thing. <laughs> I think it might just might be Seinfeld it had gotten kind of warped in my brain. Um, but that was one of the most beautiful moments in an interview.
0: It really was so surprising and so lovely and and amy is is such a beautiful, dynamic human person that it was just such a pleasure to to speak with her and uh, yeah, I, I really I really hope that that you all have enjoyed listening to this one because it was just just emblematic of how. Amazing! It was talking to people about food in New Orleans.
1: Yes, and how eager they are to share it. Yes. So eager to share it. And if any of y'all have have stories about food in New Orleans, if you're going to Mardi Gras, if you've been to Mardi Gras, please write to us. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. You can
0: find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at saverpod. And we do hope to hear from you. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressings, seltzers and fruits can be enamel enemies.
2: The cat WORK.